Welcome to Clinically Thinking. I'm Dr. Lisa Chandler. This is a podcast for clinical psychologists. Each month, I'll bring you a conversation with an experienced clinical psychologist or clinical academic who can take us inside their area of speciality and bring us up to speed with the latest research. Whether you're a graduate or an early career psychologist or a senior clinician, I hope you'll find this interesting and relevant because I believe our learning never stops. Our guest on this episode is Professor Michael Gradazar. Michael Gradazar is a professor in clinical child psychology at Flinders University and a clinical psychologist who has been specialising in sleep disorders across the lifespan since 2002. He's published over 100 publications, including clinical trials, and consulted for international and national companies, governments, and non-profit organisations. We're going to discuss the links between sleep disorders and other common clinical problems such as anxiety and depression, and how we as therapists can tackle problems such as insomnia to bring rapid improvements in people's lives. Michael, welcome. Firstly, can you tell us why sleep became the subject of your life's work? That's an interesting question. I think if you study psychology at Flinders University, especially going back uh, in the past 30 years, you would have come across a fellow called... Leon Lack. Indeed. Uh, and he's hard to escape, really, if you're going to do undergraduate. And um, I just remember be, sitting in Leon's lectures each each week and and looking forward to them. And that's saying something is sometimes you don't really look forward to lectures. It's almost like something you have to do. And, and he was just um, a great storyteller and he was really passionate. And I think the information he spoke about was quite factual and, and probably relevant uh, to my own life at that time. And I could see how I was just really interesting and um i actually didn't go down the line of um doing sleep research for my honors thesis um or initially for my phd and then um but i did end up doing a bit of casual work for leon and at one point uh my current my current phd at the time uh which was looking at uh, kids going through a, a parental separation it wasn't taking much uh uh data recruitment and so forth it was really slow and it was creating a lot of anxiety and Leon said well you've got you know some work you've been doing here why don't you jump over to sleep and I remember mm-hmm. just jumping over and as soon as I did that I was just gobbling up everything that was and consuming it as much as possible it was just so fascinating to me and uh, it's just been a huge area to explore and uh, it's been awesome just all the different discoveries I can do in research and even, you know, relevant to this podcast, just applying it in real life has been fantastic, sort of seeing clients, whether they're adults and hearing just so many comments from different adults with insomnia and then going back to the, the scientific literature and going, hang on, there's actually no science on this. Let's go and do the study. Mm. And that's been just fantastic, that sort of classic scientist practitioner model, um, you know, going from science to practice and practice to science. It's been fantastic. Leon Leck has certainly been a um, presence in my life when I studied at Flinders and, as you say, a fantastic storyteller and great lecturer. So I'm wondering about the sleep myths. What are some of the great big sleep myths that we face in clinical practice? Yeah, uh, that was it's interesting because uh, when I first started as an academic, uh, one of the first projects I looked at was sleep myths because it was something that was, uh, I guess, occurring at that time. I think, you know, going back 
15 years ago, the classic sleep myth was that uh, the best sleep was the sleep before midnight. And um, that's not necessarily true. I mean, if you fall asleep before midnight or after midnight, assuming that the uh, best sleep that you're going to get is going to be the deep sleep, which happens at the beginning of the night, um, it's just going to happen whenever you sleep. And so it's not necessarily going to occur before midnight. Maybe it was a great sort of tale for a lot of parents or grandmothers to be able to say to their kids to get them into bed early. Um, but uh, it doesn't really matter um, whether you fall asleep before or after midnight. The first few hours are going to be really good sleep. Um, okay. So I guess that's, you know, one of the that's old one. sleep myths. Yeah. Um, and probably fast forwarding to now, I'm going to go out uh, on a limb and say there's a new sleep myth, which is, and I guess if we define a sleep myth as a real discrepancy between what people or are saying in terms of the popular idea of uh, sleep, and the discrepancy between that and the actual scientific evidence, the new sleep myth, I would say, is that the blue screen that comes from our, sorry, the blue light that comes from our screens, that that directly affects sleep. Um, we've done a study at the, on this uh, at Flinders Uni in our sleep laboratory. We did this back in 2012 and published in 2014. And uh, ours was the first study to directly test this because surprisingly, even at that time, it was quite popular for people to say this um, occurs, but there was no scientific evidence for it. And we didn't find a connection. Mm. Since then, there's been several studies that have found the exact same thing. And I'm not talking about that, you know, 20 studies have been found and it's been a 50-50 split in terms of confirming or disconfirming. It's almost like every single study is showing that there is not that link. And uh, so, but trying to turn that myth around is really hard at the moment. It's just so saturated in our in our thinking and in the popular press that uh, it's really hard to even convince the scientific community because so many of them are also spouting it. So I'd say that's the current sleep myth. So what, what do you think is making it so hard to to dislodge that myth? What What is it in the face validity of it that we kind of feels right, you know, that that must be the case, that the, the blue screen or the screens are the problem? Yeah, I think that you've hit on a point there because I think firstly you've got to tackle people's experiences. So if you're just a clinician, if you're a scientist and you've used screens and when it's been bright, you've had trouble falling asleep that night, well, you've had that experience and it sort of, you know, is a piece of evidence to help solidify that belief system. And so that's always going to be hard to change. But at the same time, I think a clear difference as well is just the internet. The internet has just got so much information out there and trying to find the scientific evidence is trying to find a needle in a haystack of needles, you know. It's yes. really hard to find. Um so I think those two things combined are going to be probably the, the really biggest challenges in trying to turn around that sleep myth. So what does that mean we should be telling our clients that, that they can use their fa- look at their Facebook and play all kinds of games and then go to bed and expect to sleep? Well, yeah, I guess we've tried to find out how technology can affect sleep. Um, over this past decade by doing a series of different uh, experiments and, uh, you know, we've started to even do some of the treatment stuff. And the thing, I guess, that what we're leaning to, I guess the two main points are that there are individual differences. So it's not a one-size-fits-all. There are some people that are more susceptible to the effects of technology than others. And the second point is that 
if you look at longitudinal studies, it's more likely that people develop sleep problems first and then they increase their technology use, um, which makes sense to us. It's, it's like they start to have sleep problems. They're lying in bed, tossing and turning, thinking of all the things I've got to do in the next week or tomorrow, whatever it is. And then they learn rather than doing that, they may as well be on their phone and just kill the time. And it's, it's more pleasant to be on your phone. It's less painful than having to be anxious and worrying. Oh, that's interesting. So the, the direction of the problem is the other way, potentially. So the sleep problems lead to more tech use. That's what some of the, uh, yeah, that's what some of the longitudinal studies say, yeah. Okay, very interesting. Well, next time I'm uh, having trouble sleeping um, I'll, and I go to my Facebook, I won't be blaming my tech. I'll be thinking about my, my sleep issue, thinking about the different ways uh, that I can work on my own sleep. Okay. So I'm wondering now about what are some of the recent findings in the treatment of sleep disorders that might help busy clinicians? Um, I guess the most, if you look at some of the sleep conferences that we've gone to, I think the biggest buzz has been um, can online treatments um, be as useful for treating insomnia compared to face-to-face treatments? And and, um, when I say recent conferences, I'm not talking about ones this year, I'm talking about uh, the big ones last year which is interesting considering that we've um, had this experience with COVID and we're doing a lot of uh, online treatment at the moment. The data are pretty consistent to what you see with other online treatments uh, for other mental health issues, which is that there's a lot of attrition. So I think what we need to now look at is how do we keep people engaged with online treatments uh, in general? Um, And in some ways, maybe we're a bit fortunate with sleep because unlike, say, CBT for anxiety disorders or depression. CBT for insomnia usually takes about six sessions, if not less, uh, depending upon how successful some of the behavioral treatments are. So I think that's probably the new way that we've got to do some research on that particular topic. But in terms of advances, it's almost like we've done quite well with CBT for insomnia. Um, And it's not just, you know, for insomnia per se, but it's also really looking at the comorbidities. And I guess one area of interest for us has been that overlap between insomnia and depression. And not only noticing that if you treat the insomnia, you're more likely to get decreases in depression symptoms, but also how does that occur? Because there's so many different mechanisms that could be involved. So that's been an area of interest for us. I'm interested to hear about particularly that link between insomnia and depression. I suspect most clinicians will see insomnia, you know, as part of um, a depressive episode or, and would treat the depression first. Do you think that that's how we should proceed? Well, I think, you know, for each clinician, it depends upon their sort of confidence and uh, their experience in what treatment modality they use. So if they see someone that has both depression and sleep disturbance and they're used to Um, using any sort of treatment for depression, then sure, go for it. Um, And that will likely improve their depression symptoms. I guess research going back 15 or so years ago would say that uh, if you treat depression with CBT for depression and there are some residual insomnia symptoms there, then the person is at higher risk for relapse of depression. So... Mm. What I would say to listeners is really try to get up to speed with learning some of the uh, insomnia techniques so that they can add it on to CBT for depression. In fact, um, you might not necessarily even put it on at the end. 
I guess there's some suggestion that you would do it as a first option, um, that that can potentially help the CBT for depression. Um, and we've certainly had some psychologists in Adelaide that, uh, say, for instance, with teenagers, have tried to do CBT for depression for some of the teenagers and really just finding that the sleep problem is getting in the way. So they've referred um, to us and we've dealt with the sleep issues and uh, then referred back. So certainly the message to get out there is that there is value in learning um, treatments for insomnia and sleep issues. And even if you look at the data uh, to really sort of hammer home the importance of sleep, the meta-analyses that look longitudinally at the direction between sleep problems and depression, both in teenagers and in adults, they all show that sleep issues occur first before depression, more so than the other way around. Almost like sleep is the uh, red flag for problems coming down the track. And sometimes the separation between those two issues can be something like up to five years. So it's uh, really helpful if uh, clinicians can really learn these insomnia techniques and add it to their toolkit. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I think I um, mentioned to you that my uh, treatment of sleep turned around after uh, attending some of your workshops and learning some of these sleep treatments, the specific tr- sleep treatments. And um, one of the things I find is that can be a bit tricky is getting clients to adhere to some of them. But as you said, nutrition is a bit of an issue because um, sometimes uh, these sleep treatments are not particularly fun. Bedtime restriction is not fun. Uh, for clients, in my experience, but it certainly works, I find. And and uh, how do you work with clients who maybe don't have this problem that I do in getting them to adhere to it and to persuade them this actually will work? Yeah, yeah, it's an excellent question because I mean, if you look at one of the first validated insomnia treatments, which is uh, stimulus control therapy for insomnia, that was invented back in the nineteen seventies, and I'm guessing a lot of your listeners would have heard these uh, techniques. So the idea is, if you don't fall asleep within 20 minutes, then get up out of bed, go to a different room, do some sort of quiet activity under dim light. When you feel sleepy again, return to your bed, try to attempt sleep. If you don't fall asleep within 20 minutes, you know, rinse and repeat. Mm. And if you're in Australia or in Adelaide, for instance, and you're someone that's doing that technique in wintertime, it bloody sucks because it's dark and it's cold, you know, and it's annoying. Um, And so I think the key thing that I've learned is to try to adapt some of these techniques so that they are less, in finger quotes, painful, uh, that there is some more enjoyment to it. So even um, I've got a, a post that, I, or even a blog that I've uh, written recently on stimulus control therapy and uh, really looking at modifications of that. And uh, we were fortunate enough for um, the inventor of that type of therapy, Richard Boots, and he visited Flinders University uh, several times and I was fortunate enough to have some conversations with him and he had adapted it. So it's really looking at the stimuli and the response with stimulus control therapy. So you don't have to necessarily go into the lounge room. You can actually still be in the bedroom. He, he said you can actually sit in the chair next to the bed. So there's not much movement and you're not having to go to a separate room. And for myself, I've adapted it uh, even further by saying that uh, you don't necessarily have to get out of bed. The stimulus uh, can be not necessarily the bedroom or the bed, but it can be the head hitting the pillow. It could be turning off the bed lamp after you've been reading for a bit. Mm-hmm. And clients like that a lot more rather than having to get up and go to a, another room at another part of the house and um, disturbing the whole house. So there can be some adaptations to it. Um, and really part of it is starting to sort of change over the negative relationship that people have with their bedroom and their bed 
and making it more of a nice place to be because people do go to bed. They enjoy going there and relaxing. Um, and it's important to keep up that sort of positive association. Absolutely. So it seems from what you're saying that if you're going to treat depression and then there's an insomnia component to it of any sorts, then it seems reasonable to be getting onto that straight away, whether it's with good sleep hygiene or some stimulus control measures, low light, you know, kind of mood lighting, building in some of the um, principles of um, insomnia treatments right from the word go. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you know, we've been, uh, I guess we've got expertise, uh, particularly with adolescent sleep. So we've been looking at uh, adolescent sleep and depression and working with uh, world experts over in the University of Reading who do a lot of work with uh, teenager depression. And I guess what they've found is that uh, the treatments for depression, they haven't necessarily been advancing for the last 20 years. So they've got to look at other ways of trying to um, enhance it and other adaptive ways. And recently they've performed a meta-analysis looking at um, sleep treatments for teenage depression and they've found really good effects. Um, so it's, again, really the evidence that's catching up and, and showing that if we learn these sleep techniques and we probably do them first because they take less time and and I guess you would have seen it as well, Lisa, you sort of have cases and sometimes within a few weeks, you're seeing your clients are benefiting it and um, they can see it too. So I think that's really motivational for them. Absolutely. I'm thinking of a case um, of a client I had uh, with a chronic sleep disorder, this chronic insomnia, about nine years worth. And um, we fixed him three sessions with bedtime restriction. It was pretty unpleasant for him, I have to say. Um, but it within about three sessions over a period of three or four months and his sleep routine was completely restored. I wonder whether you can think of a, a, an example, a case study that might be useful for our listeners to hear an application of, you know, whether a sleep a stimulus control or any other particular insomnia treatment that comes to mind. Yeah, I th- and I think uh, the stimulus, con- uh, sorry, the uh, bedtime restriction one is a really classic example. We've gone actually further and um, done something called sleep restriction therapy, and we've even done it for school age kids. So when you sort of talk about this and how fast it can happen, I remember having in the early days, like one of the first clients that uh, I had that was going to do sleep restriction therapy. Um, and just to sort of get people to understand this, the idea is to limit the amount of time that they're in bed. Um, usually bedtime restriction therapy is about that you're matching that the time that they're in bed is the same as the amount of time that they're sleeping. But with sleep restriction therapy, you have 30 minutes less time in bed than bedtime restriction therapy. Hopefully that made sense. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So with this particular um, uh, seven-year-old girl, I remember sort of uh, doing the calculation and realizing that uh, the suggestion would be for her to go to bed at 11 o'clock at night. And the parents' reaction, especially the dad, was like, what? <laughs> and I was internally thinking, yeah, I totally agree with you. Um, and thankfully, mum came to the rescue and put uh, her hand on uh, dad's forearm and said, but honey, this is where so-and-so went and they got good results. And, you know, they calmed down. Uh, <laughs> but for this particular girl, she was waking up uh, quite a few times during the night and going to her parents' bedroom. And it was just fascinating. The, the following week, they they adhered to the, the structure and the program. And uh, they'd met their goal. She started sleeping through the night within a week. Um, And you don't see those sort of results usually when you're doing psychological treatment. 
Um, and it's, no, very rewarding, very rewarding when that happens, isn't it? You know, if people are prepared to do the hard work, you, you know, you, you can sell it to them that this is, we're pretty convinced this is going to work. So yeah, exactly, and and I guess you see it as well, like uh, with with adults, um, you know, like you've mentioned, they can have a history of insomnia for so long. Um, like one client in the, my early training, she had like a four hour time taken to fall asleep, and uh, we did treatment, and after a few weeks. Um, we managed to get her to fall asleep in half an hour. I mean, I wasn't impressed with that. I wanted to make it uh, even quicker for her, but she was absolutely delighted that she wasn't, you know, awake for a further three and a half hours. So it's really cool to sort of see that we can make that change in people's lives. Absolutely powerful. Uh, yeah, I find it incredibly rewarding myself. So uh, I'm hoping that after uh, uh, colleagues are listening today, they, they might feel motivated, you know, inspired to uh, look for your blog and for Wink and other uh, resources and, uh, you know, improve our, our treatments, our knowledge of sleep disorders and our treatments so our, our clients can get some better results. Can we think about now changing gears slightly? Diagnostic systems. I know that there's this thing about DSM, but that the sleep guys aren't too keen on looking at the DSM to diagnose sleep. Am I right? Is there a thing going on there? Uh, it's maybe because, and I guess to sort of give some context for your listeners, is that we've got like a DSM for sleep disorders, and it's it's a long one. It's called the International Classification of Sleep Disorders. It's up to its third edition. And um, I guess because it contains so much in-depth information about a whole range of sleep disorders, we go to that one there for our diagnosis and, and when we're doing uh, research on it. Um, but at the end of the day, really, you know, you're looking at it, at the sleep disorder through a DSM lens or an ICSD lens, it's, you're looking at the same sort of thing. So um, I wouldn't necessarily suggest that people need to be up to speed with the ICSD um, if you can have a look at the diagnostic uh, criteria for DSM-5 for insomnia disorder and the circadian rhythm disorders, that's perfectly fine. That's very helpful. So it sounds like it's something that we don't necessarily need to worry about too much if in, in general clinical practice. Just use a DSM and be happy with it. Absolutely. Okay, super. I'll let that one go then. <laughs> um, I was wondering about how you consider insomnia um i can tend to consider it as a bit of an anxiety disorder focused on sleep but i'm wondering what your thoughts about this might be well certainly you get comorbidities occurring um and i would say there's almost like a bit of a triad going on where you've got uh, insomnia anxiety and depression i mean you can get overlap between anxiety disorders and depression um, but likewise you can have overlap between anxiety disorders and insomnia and you can get the same with insomnia and depression, um, just for example. Yeah. How much do you, how much worry, does worry contribute or anxiety contribute to insomnia? Huge amount of overlap. Um, I mean, if you look at like what you just said, worry, um, if you look at some of uh, the data from, I think it's Ed Watkins, who's been looking at, say, worry and rumination and repetitive negative thinking, when he looked at different times of the day that people are more likely to worry or ruminate, it's first thing in the morning and it's the last thing at the end of the day. And so if we think about the last thing at the end of the day, you're talking about when the lights go off or, you know, in this case, a lot of, for a lot of people, the screen goes off and they're lying in the dark. And that's a perfect time when you haven't got any auditory stimuli because everything's quiet. You haven't got any visual stimuli. It's all dark. 
And just those background thoughts become more loud and people are accessing them that you have these intrusions that are occurring. And clearly, that's a time when worry can enter the mind and you start to go in circles. And that's going to prevent you from falling asleep. And if you look at, say, chronic insomnia, where this has become a really rehearsed thing, um, and we've looked at, say, some of the physiological indicators of insomnia, you do get higher metabolic rate, you get higher core temperature rhythms. And if you get a higher core temperature, then you're going to have higher alertness and higher fatigue. So clearly, in um, anxiety is a core or you should say in terms of a transdiagnostic way, there's a lot of processes that occur in anxiety disorders that also occur for insomnia. Um, and interestingly, if you treat the insomnia and you are measuring, say, for instance, with the DAS and you have the anxiety scores pre-post, you will see decreases in the anxiety scores uh, if you treat the insomnia. So again, it's it's just a way to encourage a lot of clinicians out there, you know, do your pre-post assessments with the DAS and, you know, give uh, insomnia treatment a crack. Yeah, it's yeah, very important to measure. I'm sure a lot of listeners will be using all kinds of measures for outcome measures to uh, see that things are improving. Uh, I, I'm hearing this language about worry, you know, talking about worry and thinking, um, but then there's this also this language around uh, dysfunctional beliefs. It seems like a lot of clients with insomnia have beliefs about their capacity to function if they don't get enough sleep if, if I don't get enough sleep then tomorrow I won't be able to x y and z and so forth and so on as a distinct uh, thing from just sort of general worries of the day in life do, do you think those two things are distinct yeah for sure I mean you certainly have the concerns and the worries um, and you certainly can do cognitive therapy with them if you can identify certain worries you know and and sort of see if those come true and get them to reflect on was it worth, you know, worrying about that and having a bad night's sleep. Um, but then you do have, especially for people that have chronic insomnia, uh, these certain belief systems that form. Um, and so we do have a measure called the dysfunctional beliefs about sleep uh, scale. So it's the DBAS. Um, mm -hmm. So people can just uh, Google that, um, just Google DBAS sleep and PDF or something like that, you'll be able to download it. There's different uh, variations. The original one was about 30 items. Uh, but if you want something uh, a bit uh, more, more brief, there's a 16-item version as well that could be used that's quite robust. And if you use that with your clients, you can pick up on certain themes. And I think you t really tapped into one, which is that if I have a bad night's sleep, then it's going to affect my functioning the next day. And and there's other ones like I need to have a sleeping pill in order to function the next day, uh, for example. Um, and if these themes really come through uh, in the DBAS with your clients, then it really does set the scene for setting up a behavioral experiment and testing some of those out uh, to really sort of cap off uh, the end of um, uh, cognitive therapy. But in all honesty, because the behavioral treatments are so powerful, in uh, insomnia treatment, sometimes you just don't even get an opportunity to do cognitive therapy. But if you do for some of those clients that need it, um, the DBAS can be helpful. So, yeah, I'm hearing that the, um, the behavioural, as you say, the behavioural treatments are perhaps the preferred way to go because they're so powerful. Can you, for our listeners, expand a bit on some of the behavioural treatments that are available um, for insomnia, insomnia and the circadian rhythm sleep disorders for us? Yeah, so if you look at insomnia first, um, and we have mentioned these already, so there's two main ones. There's stimulus control therapy 
and there's also bedtime restriction therapy. And I guess the reason they're so powerful is that on the one hand, stimulus control therapy works on learning theory principles, but bedtime restriction therapy, that works on our sleep physiology and particularly sleep pressure. The idea being that the longer that you're awake, the more sleepy you feel and the quicker you'll fall asleep. But in some ways, stimulus control therapy, when you're sort of getting up and down from your bed and trying to really associate the hitting you having your head hit the pillow with say falling asleep and that's a learning principle you're not getting much sleep while you're doing that so sleep pressure is building up anyway so really at the core of this the behavioral treatments uh, have sleep physiology that are helping to accelerate the benefits and helping people fall asleep a bit quicker Um, so that's really for insomnia for circadian rhythm disorders and this is when your sleep timing is say for instance delayed we see this a lot in teenagers and they're falling asleep after midnight and preferably want to sleep through until midday we've really got to change the underlying uh, circadian clock and try to make that earlier and uh, one of the most efficacious ways of doing that is to be able to provide bright light in the morning Um, and so what that does is essentially the light signals are sent through the eyes and um, then provided to the circadian clock, which is in the center of our brain, but our uh, nerves from the back of our eyes happen to pass near that. So hence why bright light in the morning is really important for correcting our circadian clock. And the whole idea is to really time the circadian uh, exposure to light that's relevant for that particular individual. So for instance, if they're falling asleep at midnight and waking up at say 10 o'clock in the morning but they have to actually get up at seven o'clock in the morning then you'd be trying to provide bright light for when they naturally wake up and every morning uh, making that earlier so that eventually that their circadian clock's coming earlier and they can wake up more naturally can you um help our listeners and understand how this might work and with one of your one of your cases that comes to mind yeah, there's been hundreds of them. It's hard to pick one, really. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think probably maybe I go back to one of the first few because, I mean, I started working at uh, an adult insomnia clinic at the Repat Hospital, uh, which was, yeah, for adults. And suddenly I started seeing all these teenagers coming through. I thought, what are you doing here? You, you know, you, you should be sleeping fine. Um, but the common problem was this uh, delayed circadian rhythm. So The idea was to um, basically allow them to sleep in, which the parents hated the idea. They thought, why have I brought my kid here? And then you try to provide them with bright light in the morning. They would get up half an hour early each morning and get bright light. Usually just going outside, that's the best source of uh, bright light that you can get, not looking at the sun because obviously that's bad, but just all of the uh, bright light that's reflected off of the surfaces that uh, are around people. And um, it's just amazing how quickly... Uh, this can occur. Like it would take, say, two to three weeks. Um, and even for that uh, lady I described who um, uh, had uh, that time taken to fall asleep that was about four hours and we managed to get it down to half an hour, she had a delayed circadian rhythm and, and she'd been working as a childcare uh, worker. So she'd been getting up at 7 o'clock uh, to go to work five days a week and sleeping in on the weekends to catch up. It was a real classic pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, like you see in teenagers, and she'd been doing it for 20 years, hence why I guess we couldn't sort of get her uh, time taken to fall asleep less than um, 30 minutes because she just learned for thousands and thousands of nights to fall asleep, well, basically go to bed and be awake for hours. She had that real strong conditioned insomnia. Um, But, yeah, I, I think she probably stands out the most because 
I think that's why I, I thought, well, it's fantastic that we can improve her time taken to fall asleep by three and a half hours, but the fact we couldn't get it less than half an hour, and technically the criterion for sleep onset insomnia is taking more than half an hour to fall asleep, it really got me thinking we have to do early intervention. We have to get to people before this sort of stuff happens. And definitely the teenage years was a classic time for me to start to have my focus and work there. But it's it's uh, one of these uh, treatments that's really efficacious. It helps, I think, in our research, at least 80% of teenagers to go from having the criteria for this disorder to after treatment not. Um, there is some relapse that happens, but uh, certainly uh, we're learning ways in which we can try to prevent that from happening. And I take your point that early intervention um, uh, is the key. Um, is there any you know, scope for work in schools and so forth and teaching kids good habits then? Because that tends to be the time when they're up, or up, up half the night and sleeping half the day. Yeah, exactly. And and that's what we started to do. We, um, uh, Lynn Mosley was a master's student at the time and she was a former teacher. So when she sort of knocked on my door to do a research project, I thought, well, it makes good sense. If you're a teacher, let's go into you know high schools and start to teach teenagers about sleep. And since then, we've done uh, three trials where we've given uh, sleep education classes, one per week for four weeks. Um, the first couple of trials showed a little bit of benefit, but relapse happened straight away. Um, but we didn't increase the amount of sleep that teenagers were getting. But by the third trial that we did this back, and it's been published uh, in 2015, uh, we were the first program in the world to actually increase the amount of sleep in te- teenagers using this uh, method of sleep education in high school. So it's definitely possible, and we've learned heaps from it. I guess the the challenge then is where psychology meets uh, um, education and curriculum, like trying to be able to introduce this into a school because I guess a lot of schools find that, yes, they want to do a well-being program, but at the same time they'll have a well-being day. So they just want to have one hour on sleep for that day. Um, and that doesn't really give the teenagers enough time to reflect on their learning and what they're learning and applying it and making a change to their sleep. They will certainly increase their knowledge, but not necessarily change their behaviour. So trying to find how we can now adapt to the school system, that's, uh, I think, the next big target for us. Uh, yeah, schools are incredibly busy, aren't they? Busy places with lots of competing demands and, uh, you know, sometimes it's just one too many things to squeeze into their busy days. I'm wondering about uh, these uh, rhythm disorders, the circadian rhythm disorders, you know, I have to say that until I went to your seminar, I don't think I'd heard of them, um, but I went away from it thinking I was in, then therefore <laughs> equipped with basic skills to, to spot them um, for a good start and then with the easy ones uh, maybe to, to tackle them. Do you think Do you think I'm alone in that? I'm the only one who, who doesn't actually know what they are and or didn't know what they were? Or Do you think maybe it's a bit more prevailing that, that a lot of clinical psychs in general practice uh, miss uh, anything that's not insomnia? Yeah, I mean, I remember that uh, particular um, uh, seminar. I think that was back in 2010 oh, or something. It was a while ago. It was a while ago, but yeah. it stuck in my head. There you go. Well, I'm glad you remember it. I'm glad. And that's the key thing, I think, you know, to be able to sort of go to a seminar and not just talk and then that's it and, you know, people had a good time or, you know, didn't manage to fall asleep. It's got to be really applying those into practice and, you know, using them with cases. Um, and so, you know, that's been 10 years ago. Uh, if you look in the past 10 years, I guess we've seen much more 
development or introduction of sleep in university courses, uh, undergraduate, uh, but also postgraduate and masters and clinical masters. We, we've, I think at Flinders, you know, we were very fortunate to have Leon there and he was one of the first people in Australia to really do anything about sleep and insomnia and circadian rhythm disorders. And so it's been just our bread and butter, you know, it's just what we're used to. And, and I guess what we've seen is that certainly across different universities in different states, they're affiliated with some sort of sleep disorders unit and sleep research unit. And now we're seeing the um, more of an introduction. So I think there's going to be more awareness of circadian rhythm disorders now than there was 10 years ago. Oh, that, yes, probably speaks to my um, my advanced age there, Michael, <laughs> how long ago <laughs> I was trained and thank goodness for ongoing education. But I have to share a little story, a little Leon story, if I may, for our listeners. Uh, many years ago, I was uh, working away in my office and I had a sleep client come in, coming in and I needed some help. I heard Leon, so I gave him a call at Flinders and he picked up his phone, silly man, that was his first mistake. And I had asked him this question, can't remember what it was now, um, about sleep. And he laughed and in a very pleasant way, I must say. And I said, oh, what's funny? What are you laughing about? And he said, well, in his accent, I usually give a 12, 12 one-hour um, lectures on this topic. And I said, that's great. I've got 20 minutes. What have you got for me? And so he very graciously helped me with this question I had, um, whatever it was around the sleep. And I used that information straight away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's it. there's always a Leon story and, uh, yeah, it's always great if you can do it with the accent too. <laughs> um, so I'm interested in um, this burgeoning interest in many, in medical sleep disorders. And we talk about, um, I don't know about you, but you, I hear about um, sleep apnea a lot in my practice. And I, I know that's not something that we particularly work on, but I wondered whether there was any kind of uh, sleep questions regarding these non-psychological sleep disorders or ways to pick them up that psychologists could use to help with our clients to get them into the right treatment when it's not a psychological issue yeah that's a that's an excellent question i mean when i was in my first year of uh, working uh, at an adult insomnia clinic um I definitely recall there was this uh, female that came in and she was in her mid-40s. She was thin and, um, you know, she had insomnia. And uh, so I did uh, CBT for insomnia. And one of the first things was bedtime restriction therapy. Following week, she came back and she said she had a minor car accident. And, you know, when you're practicing at the start, it's like, oh, my God, this is awful. <laughs> um, and... What we ended up doing, uh, which was not the thing that you would do back then, is we managed to get um, a sleep study to sort of find out about her sleep, but also her breathing, because um, we were just running out of uh, options. And it came back that she had uh, moderate to severe insom uh, sleep apnea as well as insomnia. And this, had, this was unheard of back in 2000, and I think it was 2003 even, or 2004. And, um, and it really just opened our eyes. And, you know, fast forward to 2020 and uh, some of the research that's now been conducted at Flinders University has really shown a high comorbidity between sleep apnea and insomnia um, and that you just can't spot these people when you look at them. It used to be that, you know, it was more likely going to be a heavy set male, um, but that's not necessarily the case. And it's not just sleep apnea. There's a whole range of different medical disorders but probably what it filters down to is that a lot of them have daytime sleepiness and uh, you can measure that, at least as a psychologist. So you can have some screening questions. You can ask 
questions around snoring or whether anyone has noticed that your client has uh, had times when they have stopped breathing. But uh, there's a scale called the Epworth Sleepiness Scale. So you can actually Google that, put those as uh, search terms and uh, as well as PDF or download, and you should be able to find it. It's only eight items, so it's quite easy and quick to score. And if uh, the client has uh, a score of 10 or more, then that indicates uh, excessive sleepiness. So that's another nice way just to check if there's other sort of medical conditions and and whether that might sort of uh, hamper the ability of doing CBT for insomnia. Because you've got to be careful. As soon as you start doing sleep restriction therapy or bedtime restriction therapy, uh, then their sleepiness is going to increase and and you want to be very careful. Usually we don't have to worry about what sleepiness does unless people are driving a car or operating machinery or they're a surgeon or something like that. So certainly check those things out if you can. Yes, I certainly see a lot of clients in my practice that have um, sleep apnea. Maybe I spot them, I don't know. Um, But it seems like it's worth including some of those questions in our regular screening if we're going to be working on what we think might be an insomnia um, case just to make sure that we're not missing, you know, as best we can or or, uh, those kind of other problems. I'm wondering what you think might be the most reasonable sleep um, disorders for those of us in general clinical practice um, to treat and which are best referred on to the sleep specialists amongst us? Yeah, I I think this this sort of really relates to what uh, your conversation, that phone conversation you had with Leon, Um, because I think there are things that you know, any generalist psychologist can do with with sleep and particularly insomnia. And if you think about it with insomnia, there's two behavioral techniques that we've talked about. So people can learn that and they can apply it. And then when it comes to, say, cognitive uh, therapy and cognitive restructuring and behavioral experiments, uh, a lot of people know how to do that for different disorders. So they can apply those techniques uh, to insomnia. So certainly they can do that. I think Uh, where it might be quite difficult is when you get certain comorbidities that might be occurring. And certainly when you start to get uh, circadian rhythm disorders, I mean, it'd be interesting to sort of hear your experience with those as well, uh, Lisa, but, um, you know, you're starting to talk about fairly straightforward techniques to use, but there can be a lot of complications with those. And I think this is probably where it really differentiates the general psychologist from the specialist uh, psychologist who's working in sleep Um, because, you know, say, for instance, my PhD, I was actually measuring in a lab uh, circadian rhythms and so I know how they work. I know the different facets of them and without having to put someone in a lab, I can sort of ask some clinical questions, a heck of a lot of them, and sort of get to an understanding about the timing and where this person's circadian rhythm might be, where a general general psychologist wouldn't necessarily be able to do that. Um, so I think it's really important that uh, people understand that they can certainly, you know, be introduced to this area of uh, sleep psychology and clinical psychology by having a go when it comes to people with insomnia. But perhaps when it starts to get to sort of circadian rhythm disorders, they might want to consider uh, referring on um, because I think for a lot of those people, they've tried so many different Uh, types of techniques and uh, their hopes are really fairly low Um, and so they really do need to have some sort of benefit some sort of uh, hope there and I think those are the cases where it's really great to refer on. Yeah it's um, I totally agree with you Um, I guess it's about working within your scope isn't it and the you know 
knowing the literature and and um, applying it in, in a fairly assertive way. You know, there's no point in pussyfooting around here when you've got these issues. The work needs to be done and, uh, you know, getting your clients to do the work means that you have to know your own stuff first so that you can persuade them that this is what needs to happen. This will most likely really help. Uh, however, it's going to be potentially tricky so that's what I that's the approach I take and when I think it's a bit out of my out of my scope I would then I would refer on to someone like you yeah that's that's it and you know when I sort of think about probably my last uh, 18 months you know I've had so many rare cases now of teenagers who just cannot get to school and for some of them they've got the, one of the most severe circadian rhythm disorders which is called non-24 uh, circadian rhythm disorder so they, they're not necessarily having a late time that they fall asleep and a late time that they wake up these guys are falling asleep later every single day and waking up later every single day they're going around the clock essentially and so they can't do anything um so it's really important that uh, people sort of know the limits i guess of what they can and cannot do and certainly um refer to a sleep specialist if they can i'm wondering um, about one final thing I tend to get referrals from um, some some doctors and and from sleep physicians, and sometimes there's a bit of an issue in persuading them that uh, the clients that um, that their problem is psychological, not medical. And when I can persuade them of that, then they'll usually respond well to the appropriate treatments. I wonder whether that's a, a problem that you've found, or perhaps your referral source is different. I don't know. Um, is that something you've noticed in your work? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's not every doctor, but even just recently, I think, um, you know, when we look at sort of Medicare, you know, Medicare, in order to receive those, that sort of referral uh, to for clinical psychology services, there has to be a diagnosable sleep disorder, you know, something from the DSM or the ICSD-3. And uh, I remember having a conversation with a doctor um, because it was around an infant. And, of course, this happens a lot uh, where they're saying, well, I can't give a K-10 and a DAS to an infant, you know, Um, and uh, so I'm really reluctant to give them a diagnosis. So this is, I guess, where it is handy when you've got the ICSD because it does actually state that the diagnosis of chronic insomnia disorder can apply to children. Uh, especially if it requires parental intervention. Um, And the research clearly shows that we really should be trying to get on top of infant sleep problems because if we don't, one of the most reliable outcomes, negative outcomes, is that there's a twofold increase in maternal depression. And we all know how hard depression is to treat. But if you can do uh, sleep treatment with an infant, that can sometimes, at best case scenario, take three days. Um, So there's a massive difference in um, how we can try to prevent uh, depression in in adults and and just by treating uh, infant sleep problems. And I just remember having this conversation with this doctor and um, she she wanted to get my opinion. And uh, so I gave her my opinion based upon the ICSD-3 and she didn't like it. She said, well, that's an international... Um, no, she, sorry, she said that's, that's uh, published by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and I don't like the American thing. Some of them, you know, diagnose psychosis in, in small children and she discussed how she talked to some of her colleagues who are GPs and a psychiatrist here and a, another doctor specialising in paediatrics here and, and they had a different opinion. 
and uh, I, I was like, for Christ's sake, you know, what do I have to do here? I've, 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 I've done treatments for these uh, guys. I'm a specialist, been working for 20 years, got clinical trials that are published and have been interviewed by New York Times. And I'm on the Pediatric Sleep Council, which is an international group of experts. You know, if I've got, you know, some medical doctors challenging me um, that something isn't mm. psychological in the way that uh, we see it, um, everyone else is going to have issues with that too. So um, th- there definitely will be issues. I don't just don't know the way that the um, general psychologist is going to be able to handle it. I think the best thing that we can do is really get into the training of medical doctors, get in early. It's almost like prevention. Uh, they have to, the, the, their curriculum is packed, but they've really got to be updated with the information or even if it's continuing professional development, just get in there and really let them know about the new diagnoses, about the research and about the evidence and how it shows that uh, psychological treatment is effective. Yeah, um, yeah this, important. absolutely. And there's certainly um, that persuasion, like some of the doctors that will refer to me, um, they're convinced that this is a psychological problem, but their clients uh, are not and w- want a medical explanation uh, for their sleep disorder and it's getting that, them to persuade, persuading them that the psychologist is the one to help can, is still, I think, a bit of a barrier. Um, uh, getting clients to turn up, I might get a bunch of referrals from sleep physicians, but uh, that translating that into actual clients attending I think sometimes is a bit lower and I think it's to do with how some people perceive their own um, sleep problem. They don't think it's yeah. a psychological problem. So I think there's, there's a kind of, um, uh, I don't know, stigma is not the right word. But, um, not, maybe we're not selling it quite right yet, you know, that we've got these great techniques and they're really efficient and effective. Well, we can fix this pretty fast most of the time. I think a lot of clients know it's it's uh, I need medicine. I want you to give me temazepam, doctor, or, or some other sleep elixir that will fix my problem just like that. They don't want to do the hard work. I, I think sometimes it's unpleasant. They don't want to do it. You've hit it bang on. I mean, there was a study that was done, again, like more than a decade ago, looking at uh, where people seek help for their insomnia. 99% of them go to the doctors. The doctors are trained in prescription medication. And a lot of the time people are okay with that in some ways because it's a quick fix. Then the remaining 1% uh, clinical psychology has to fight against the pharmacists and the herbalists and all those other sorts of, I'll say, wacky, because <laughs> there's no evidence base behind some of these things, uh, therapies. Um, and so I think, yeah, what do we have to do? Somehow we need a budget to be able to compete against these things, you know, because our clients have an attentional bias towards sleep. So do sleep psychologists like myself. And we see quite quickly all of these ads, whether they're on a bus or whether on the TV or they're on the radio, advertising all these different Alexas that we have to compete against. So it's really it goes down to, again, there's a lot of information thrown at the community but getting the message across about the actual evidence that works and has durable effects, you know, for at least up to two years is what the research shows, um, is damn hard. Very hard, very hard indeed. Can you tell us finally about um, your blog and, and about Wink and some of the resources that um, are easily available to um, clinical psychs in practice? Yeah, yeah. I, I think uh, a lot of this comes from, I guess, various experiences in the past decade where you know, I've been able to do uh, full-day workshops around the country, teaching psychologists about the treatment uh, of sleep disorders across the lifespan. Because, uh, I, as I said, I started with adults, 
then went to teenagers and I've worked with school age kids and infants, etc. So, you know, my youngest client's been five months of age. My oldest has been 90 years of age. And, you know, there's also been that uh, nexus that's been reached with the research that we've been doing and finding out what works and what doesn't work. And then I guess through a career of doing that for, say, 10 or so years, um, it got to the point of, okay, well, I've managed to help people in Adelaide. I've managed to train people around different uh, capital cities in Australia. How do I sort of go broader than that? And, of course, you know, we've got the lovely internet these days and that's a great vehicle to be able to do that. But, um, you know, to try to sort of find ways uh, to make that technology happen, to try to find the funding for that to happen, I think that's where a lot of universities may struggle to do that. And I guess during the last decade, I've also managed to attract the attention of different companies and, and work with them and see how fast they can actually get something to the public. Um, so it's really been a case of uh, if I haven't been able to do it through the university system, uh, I have to undertake it myself. Um, so that's where I was like, well, I've got to have a website. Um, so we started that website. It's called winksleep.online. That'll get you to the website. And so the idea is to, to really provide provide a range of information, like you know whether it's a blog and you find some really handy sort of uh, techniques that you can use that are quite quick can be done in five minutes with a client or help you with assessment you know you'll find stuff on blogs we've got a, a free weekly newsletter that'll uh, come out and it will try to provide something that's practical um, but then we've also got say for instance books that uh, we've managed to write in we've got uh, I mean our end goal is really professional development and it's trying to um, teach people about how to do what we do um, so we're basically developing uh, treatment manuals, uh, electronic uh, PDFs uh, with accompanying uh, instructional videos so that people can actually read what to do, hear what we do in a step-by-step fashion um, and then be able to apply it with their clients. Um, so Wink has really been the way that I've been able to fast track uh, trying to teach people, not just around Australia, but really around the world. Um, and clearly it's a, it's a needed uh, type of issue. That's great. Um, I'm personally one of the people who uses your the Flinders sleep wake diary and routinely, every every day just about, um, and have enjoyed looking at Wink and and so I'd encourage our listeners to look that up and also to look up your whenever you do anything on LinkedIn, it's always worth having a look at. There's little pithy comments and tips, absolutely fabulous, and also the dysfunctional sleep beliefs. Uh, is that what it's called? The dysfunctional sleep. Yep, the yep. DBAS. DBAS, yep. uh, that's a terrific tool that I recommend to our listeners as well. Thank you for your time, Professor Michael Gratisar. Thanks again. Thank you very much, Lisa. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Michael Gratisar and that some of his tools and suggestions about treating sleep disorders might be useful and helpful in your practice. You might also like to follow and interact with the Clinically Thinking Facebook page, where we post more information about our guests and links to the professional resources they have to offer. I'll also add a link to the website and blog that Michael mentioned in this episode. Look out for a new episode of Clinically Thinking next month. I hope you'll join us then. I'm Lisa Chandler. Thanks for listening.